but I, I think I will anyhow. Uh, I enjoy wearing a coat when I preach, but I have this problem with overheating. And so sometimes I'm just sweating bullets before I come up and I take the coat off. So I, I just, I don't know, I just thought I'd tell you that. <laughs> and I don't wear a tie because I don't want to. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, how good you are to send your son to die for all our sins and for all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray, Lord of the harvest, that you would send forth laborers into your harvest. And Jared and Melanie are doing that along with their family and many others. And there's a harvest here in Lansing too. So I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be aware of that and by your grace to live in such a way that others will see Christ in us and will have the opportunity to share. Now, Lord, as we come to the word of God, we pray that you'll open our minds that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Most of us enjoy traveling. It's good to get away, especially after all the restrictions of COVID. There's usually excitement in the air when you travel. You are maybe going to a new place, and that is interesting and fascinating. Or maybe you're going to an old place, which brings back wonderful uh, memories of former times, good times. Now, our vacations don't always work as we had intended but that doesn't stop us from planning another trip the next year. And on the way we go. I can remember traveling with uh, our youth group, sometimes with our family, and as we traveled, we would sing songs. Sometimes as silly as John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Remember that one? His name is my name too. Wherever we go out, the people always shout, there goes John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and you sing it over and over until the parents pull over and say, you've got to stop that. And sometimes we'll sing songs as crude and monotonous as 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Of course, we Christianize it, 99 bottles of Coke on the wall, which revealed we weren't Mormons. But uh, it's kind of silly songs, but it helps pass the time. Did you know that people in the Bible love to travel? Especially when they had the opportunity to go to the city of Jerusalem, that is Jews going to their favorite city. They couldn't wait to get on the road. They often were from small villages and this was an opportunity which they craved to be in the big city. It was a time of reunion, a time of parties, Time of wonderful worship. In fact, the, the Hebrews, that is every male over 21, was required to go into the city of Jerusalem every, three times every year, Passover, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So they just wouldn't miss it. They loved to go. 
But their trip's a little bit different than our trips because God invited them to come into his house. He opened up his home for them. And that's why they love to go. They would plan their whole year and arrange their calendar around this wonderful opportunity of going to Jerusalem and being in the presence of God. Now, this trip was not always easy. It was rather difficult. It was a long trip. Sometimes it took a month or more over rough terrain, narrow mountain passages. Danger lurked everywhere. Uh, The hills were notorious for highway robbers. And so when they took this trip on, they knew it was going to be hard and difficult. And there were temptations, too. We're told that in that day in the mountains around Jerusalem, the Canaanites still had temples or, or altars, at least, and shrines to their fertility gods, Baal and his female consort, Ashtoreth. And so while you went through the mountains, it was difficult, and it was tempting, and it was challenging. So they traveled in groups, and they sang songs. Songs that were a little more serious than ours. Songs about God and his greatness. Songs about their yearning and longing. They were so good that God put them into a collection of 15 songs and put them in the songbook of the Bible called Psalms. And you can see those Psalms of Ascent. They go from 120 to 134. Today, I want to draw your attention to perhaps the greatest hit in the whole collection, at least in my mind, Psalm 121. And you can open up your Bibles to Psalm 121. Literally, the Psalms of pilgrimage or of ascent meant the songs of going up. Because you'll notice everywhere in your Bible, when they went to Jerusalem, they went up. Even if they were coming from the north and going down, as we think of it, on a map, they were going up to Jerusalem. So imagine some guy on a trip, long trip, difficult trip, dangerous trip from home, with a group of his friends, and they camp out at night, and around the campfire, they sing songs. This guy's got a guitar strung over his back. Well, a lyre, I guess it would be. Uh, Some stringed instrument. And he starts out one of his songs, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now that's a question. In one of the older translations, the King James, it's not a question, it's a statement. I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence comes my help. Period. So that's different. It's a whole different way to look at it. The punctuation often is added by the translators. But from my best understanding, this is supposed to be a question. If you look up into the hills and you're thinking about the hills of Jerusalem, yeah, that's encouraging. But long before you get to the hills of Jerusalem, you encounter the hills around Jerusalem, and they are terrifying. So when I lift up my eyes... To the hills, I'm gripped with fear. And you know, that sounds a lot like the journey that you and I have to walk. We lift up our eyes and see the problems around us. We look, lift up our eyes and see the 
future ahead of us, and it's unknown, and we're crying out, where are we going to find help? Our hills are complicated and difficult and dangerous, like the hill of weak finances. Or maybe the the hill of not having a job or heartbreak at home. Or perhaps you just went to the doctor. It was a normal checkup until they called back and said, the doctor wants to see you again. And when you come back, it's a whole different tenor. And you're facing a whole different situation. As he tells you, you've got a serious condition. And the road ahead looks bumpy at best. Where do I find help? for this kind of bumpy road of life that we all face? Well, if verse one is a question, then verse two is the answer. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't come from the God who are in the hills of this world. They'll always fail you. They'll always disappoint you. They'll always confuse you. It comes from the God who made the hills and the God who is sovereign over them. So in this wonderful song, we can ask the simple question, what kind of help can we expect to get from God? The kind of help that you and I need to face these difficulties in life. Well, the scripture says this, says first of all in the first or second verse, we can expect powerful help. We can expect almighty help. We can expect divine help. You say, where do you get that? Well, you read the short eight verses of this little song and you'll notice that five times the name Jehovah is mentioned. I hope your translation still has the name Lord in all capitals. That's very helpful because that's speaking not just about an earthly Lord, and sometimes that word is used for God, but this is speaking about Jehovah or Yahweh. And every time it's found in this song, it's speaking about the covenant God who has made an agreement with his people, and he will not fall back on his promise. He's the God over everything, Jehovah. And then, of course, it's powerful help because this is the one who created the heavens and the earth. Now, we say that all the time. But I think we are so used to this amazing creation that we don't spend time thinking about it. Our help is from the name of the Lord, Psalm 124 says, another one of the songs, who made, who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. It was Isaiah who said, I lift up my eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each by name? Who does that? Because of his great power and mighty strength, Not one of them is missing. So why do you complain, Jacob, O people of God? Why do you say, my way is hid from the Lord? My cause has been disregarded by my God. How foolish 
So powerful that in Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, he spoke a word and the universe came into existence. He breathed and everything that he wanted to create was created. It doesn't matter how much time he takes, he could have done it in an instant. That's how powerful our God is. And that's how dangerous a theory like evolution is. Because it takes away the creatorship from God. And if God is our maker, he owns us. And if God made us and owns us, then we'll answer to him. But if I can take God out of the creation equation, then I'm safe. There's no God. There's no one to answer to. That's that's the perspective of those who don't know God or want to run from God, but those who know God, how encouraging it is. He made everything, and he is offering you his help. If you're building a house, and you say to me, Don, could you give us some help? I'd say I'd be glad to. But it's going to be pretty poor help. I'm not getting on the roof. I don't do windows. I can hammer for a few minutes until I can't grip the hammer anymore and I have to quit. Maybe five, maybe ten. But I can drink the lemonade and I can give orders. Maybe moral encouragement. I'm not much help. But God, how'd you like to have God on your building team? Lord, I'd like to have a house right there. Boom. He could do it. Now, he's not, he's not chosen to do that. He uses us in the process, but that's the kind of power he has. And notice the promise in verse 3. He will not let your foot slip or stumble. He will not allow you to ultimately fall. We'll talk about this a little bit later on. But this is actually more in a spiritual perspective. I'm sure there was a physical component to it for the trip, but in In other parts of the Psalms, like Psalm 73, Asaph says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold when I began to envy the wicked. That's a spiritual slipping. And God's got us so much in his hand that he's not going to let us go. He has preserved our lives and he keeps us from slipping, says Psalm 66. Oh, you can trust a powerful God like this. The God of heaven is my guardian. But that's not all. Not only can we expect powerful help, we can expect constant help. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 3. He will not let your foot slip. That's his promise. His promise is backed by his unlimited power. But now he has constant help because he watches over you. The one who watches over you will not slumber, verse 4. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So he's always awake. He's always on duty. He never leaves his post. Never nods off when he should be working. One thing we don't notice in our English translations is the fact that there is a Hebrew word that is mentioned six times, and it means 
to observe and to preserve. Observation and protection. It's usually translated with the word watch or maybe keep in your Bibles. And here we have it in verse 3 and in verse 4. He who watches over you so as to protect you will not go to sleep. How helpful it is to have private security and then to come, come to find out they sleep all night. That's their job to be awake. God never sleeps. Indeed, the one who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, this is poetry, and so it's, it's good to uh, put it in brief form and to mention the same thing twice. But emphasis in the Bible, or repetition in the Bible, means emphasis from God. I'm not going to sleep. By the way, you can sleep because he doesn't. You can put your head on the pillow at night and say, Lord, thank you for a great day. See you in the morning. I remember I was taught a prayer, you know, as a little kid. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, that's kind of a tough prayer for a little kid. But we didn't think about the words we were saying so much. If I should die before I, I'm not going to sleep. But the truth is this, he's watching over me, right? He's caring for me. And I can put my head on the pillow and sleep. Mesopotamian literature at that time used to talk about a sleeping God as one who did not hear the prayers of hurting people. He wasn't in tune with their needs. George Knight, one of the commentators in the Old Testament on the book of Psalms, says legend has it that Baal would fall asleep every hot summer and go below the ground. There's a God who's great help. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel in the contest with the prophets of Baal? Remember how they were going to meet on this mountain and the God who would answer by fire, let him be the God. Everyone agreed with the ground rules and it was even home turf for the Baal prophets because they had an altar there. And so everyone up, went up to the altar. They put out the sacrifice. They called on God from morning till night, their God, Baal. And he never answered, right? And they cut themselves and he still didn't respond. So Elijah steps in with some of the best sarcasm you'll find anywhere in the Bible. About noontime, halfway through their prayer, he said, said shout louder. <laughs> Maybe he's hard of hearing. Surely he's a God, isn't he? Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy. Which I think literally means in Hebrew, he's in the bathroom. Although it says it a little more interestingly than that. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and has to be awake. Yell louder. So they did. And nothing happened. And then, of course, when Elijah built an altar for the true God and put the sacrifice on it with doses, gallons of water, he just said, God, show these people that you're real and I'm your servant. Boom. Fire came. 
Our God doesn't sleep. He is ceaseless in his care over us. He is the vigilant guardian of his people. And his care is constant. 24-7 care. What are some of the things that keep you awake at night? Probably some of those same hills that you've been encountering in life. Give it to God. I see the hills. Where's my help coming from? And God says, I've got your back. I'm with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But it gets even better. Not only is it powerful help and constant help, but it is, we can expect intimate help. Now, God could help from a distance. God is above us and transcendent, but he is with us in an intimate way. How do you know that? Close by, personal, local. Well, look at verse 5. The Lord watches over you. There's that key word again. He observes and protects. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Now, the right hand is the position of trust. It's the position of authority. And it also often speaks of intimacy. God is at your right hand. The creator comes close to you. He's in our space. You don't like people in your space, do you? Unless there's a real deep and personal relationship of love. God's so close, he provides shade over you. It's nice to know that we can dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91. The one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Live your life in his shadow. That's protection. That's power. That's intimacy. And notice as he protects you and watches over you, verse 6, the sun will not harm you, literally strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, in the Middle East, the sun is scorching. Remember the story in Jonah when he had the plant that gave him shade and the gourd was taken down and he complained to God in the hot sun? It's oppressive. You can easily get sunstroke, dehydrated. You can drink a bunch of water and just have to keep drinking and drinking. It's kind of like the pressures of life. Like the sun beating down on us in the desert. And we all feel it. We all experience it. Came across a quote not too long ago where someone said, I used to think of life as a highway and occasionally there were some bumps along the road now I think of life as a country road and occasionally there's a smooth spot now that may be a bit pessimistic but have you been there I have one bump after another and I don't like potholes but life is full of them so God is going to step in. His smile 
the cool shade of his presence, to hear his voice through his word, drinking the water, the cool, refreshing water of Scripture. Oh, God's presence is intimate. But the same word for sun, the sun will not strike you by day, is used for the moon, nor will the moon strike you at night. You say, I never thought of the moon as being so menacing, so terrifying. Well, it may just be poetic balance. After all, we're reading a poem. But we do use that word in an interesting way, don't we? The Latin word for moon is Luna, we, where we get the English word lunatic. <laughs> and what is a lunatic? Someone who has been moonstruck. <laughs> the primitive belief was that the moon had adverse powers, on your, uh, adverse powers on your mind. Even the grinding of the teeth was showing that the moon was playing tricks on you. So what it refers to probably is harmful forces that you encounter by day and difficult negative forces that you encounter by night. God protects you from them all. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, the great preacher from England in the 1800s, a present God. I cannot suggest a theme to make you more courageous God is everywhere, in every place, in every time. His eyes never sleep. His hands never rest. He's in the city traffic, as well as the country quietness. Every place feels his footsteps. Every moment trembles with his presence. My friend, God is intimately with his people. And then it says in verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He won't let our foot stumble. He keeps us from all harm. The, is that prosperity gospel? Does that mean that if I trust the Lord, I'll never have a physical problem? No. I think Warren Worsby has it right when he says, you may be hurt, but you won't be harmed. In this physical life, we're going to experience difficulties. But in our relationship with God, and our spiritual walk, and our ultimate destiny, you cannot be harmed. Don't fear those who kill the body. Fear the one who can take both body and soul and put them into a place of punishment in hell. Fear him, and when you do, the body may be hurt, but the soul will never be harmed. And that's great. One final thing. We can expect powerful help, constant help, intimate help. And how about this one? We can expect forever help. That's verse 8. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forever. You're going out and you're coming in. What does that mean? Your whole of life. You know, the Jews think a lot about that going out and coming in. They put a little box, a metal cylinder on their doorframe called a mezuzah. You ever seen these before? And inside, they have scripture. They were told to do this according to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
and they'll touch it as they're going out, and they'll touch it as they're coming back in. And the verse they recite when they do is Psalm 121, verse 8. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forever. Today and all of your tomorrows. I need him now, and I know I'm going to need him again. And the scripture says, you'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out because God's right there watching you. By the way, if you look at this psalm, it's rather interesting. Again, poetry, but you've got all these opposites, right? To uh, awake and sleep, day and night, sun and moon, in and out, now and forever. And for the Hebrews, opposites like that spoke of the totality of life experience. Verse 7, he will watch over your life when you're traveling, going out, and when you're coming back home. His protection is as refreshing as it is complete. It's very interesting in Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. I remember one time in a class asking the students, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Now you're always afraid to answer in class because you think the teacher's trying to trick you. And they often are. But that's how you learn, right? So is it a good thing or a bad thing? How many think that it's a good thing, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching over the evil and the good? How many think people think it's a good thing, okay? How many think it's a bad thing? How many think it's kind of both? How many are done with these stupid questions? <laughs> it depends on your relationship with the one who's watching, right? If I'm trying to run to God, nothing could be more encouraging. If I'm trying to run away from God, nothing could be more discouraging because there's no place I can go where he won't see me. And so I remember in elementary school, I was sitting in the back of the class having a good time until Mrs. Hicks said, Donnie, I want you to come up and sit here at the front. And then she said this, I've got my eye on you. <laughs> that was the end of fun in elementary school, <laughs> at least for the sixth grade. <clears throat> but you think of it in a positive context. God says, I've got my eye on you because I love you. I'm going to observe your going out and your coming in. I'm going to protect your going out and coming in with my power, with my presence, with my shade forever. And it doesn't get any better than that. God is our guardian. And he says to us, I've got your back. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Amen.